Yes, it's that time again. I say again because this is the second time. First draft has got a name. It's in my consciousness this is slowly becoming a podcast. Very slowly. Only because uh, when I write down the name of this thing to tell you all about it and field your excellent questions... I'm calling it like a, a podcast-ish, voicemail, audio drop type thing. It just looks lame. So, it's a thing that's soon going to be recognised as a podcast. Anyway, here again, episode two. When I was in school, I studied Samuel Beckett's very famous play, Waiting for Godot. And I remember my English teacher. Wow, this is like quarter of a century ago i remember my english teacher explaining that the two acts of waiting for godot were sufficient to suggest a series stretching to infinity um <laughs> so if i only ever do two of these podcasts you'll see it is almost a podcast uh you will still have the impression that there might be another one at some point i think there will be i think there'll be another one next week anyway We'll get to that at the end. I'll set the scene for you. I, I'm, I'm out walking again. Uh, and, and once more, because I live quite near an airport, I'm in the flight path. So you'll hear some rumbling of aircraft above. But there's, there's no ancient anthills. I'm, I'm taking a different route. My dog gambling behind me. I'm walking through a muddy field. My left Wellington boot... Uh, is damp because yesterday on my walk I tried to wade through a river to ford it, if you will, like a medieval army. Um, and I, I sort of sunk into the mud up to my knee really fast, so fast I was scared. And went, Ugh! and made a like a noise, and then I had to look around to see that nobody was watching me. Anyway, um, so where am I walking? I'm, I'm taking a little walk. It's a National Trust walk, a short circular walk. That's grown up. Um, it's one of my favourite walks because it's a destination walk. On this circular walk is, a, is an ancient, not anthill, but tree. And that tree is known as the Anchorwick Yew. It's a yew tree. And those trees, those goddamn trees can get pretty old. This one's more than a thousand, maybe more than two thousand. Could it be three thousand years old? I don't think it's three thousand years old, but it's about two thousand years old, maybe. It's a history tree. We're going to get there and I'll describe it to you with words. That'll be nice. Um, I parked my car. Obviously, I, d I don't drive circular National Trust walks. I parked my car on Magna Carta Lane because on the other side of the River Thames from Runnymede. One day I'll take you to Runnymede. That'll be romantic, won't it? Uh, I'm on the other side of the river from Runnymede. And that's where the Anchorwick U is. Anyway, what else can I say? The field is muddy, empty of cows, some large oaks standing bare, their branches gnarled, yet noble. I feel like I'm getting that way in my life. And uh, my gnarled but noble hand is holding my iPhone, in which I'm blathering on. And on that iPhone, thank you, subscribers, 
are your questions. The questions you posed because you wanted me to answer them. And I'm going to go to those questions and I answered a few very briefly this week when I, when I did the post for anyone want to hear anything on this podcast type thing. I answered a few, but mainly I, I thought I'd defer and answer the best ones on, on this thing. So let's go, as they say, as I'm saying right now. Man, there were some, there were some excellent questions. And I'm going to start with one from Valerie. I've tried to, I've tried to make the E in the middle of Valerie's name, Valerie, sound quite E-ish because she's got an accent acute on it. Anyway, Valerie, Valerie's got a good question. Valerie says, I'm curious about the practicalities around a medieval battle, specifically for the common soldier. How were they recruited? Did every able man have to go out and fight? Did some people stay home? Did some people dodge the draft? How were they provided for? She asks a lot of questions. Well, uh, and she also suggests that this is a pod mail, uh, which is a decent portmanteau, but I don't, I don't think I'm going to call it pod mail. But I do like the question. And it's a question that is, has been on my mind, like, so much recently, because, as some of you, maybe all of you, know, some of you, maybe all of you, are sick of hearing, I'm writing a novel. It's called Essex Dogs, and its subject is the Cressy Campaign, of 1346 and the Hundred Years' War, and its its principal characters are some ordinary foot soldiers and archers, like a little company, a little platoon, ten of them, and uh, they got to survive. Now, the details of the Cressy campaign, man, you can find those pretty pretty easily. The military strategy, the marching, the where do they go, but as Valerie has rightly noted, you sometimes see less of what the experience actually was like for ordinary people. Um, and the truth is, we know something, and there are some big gaps in our knowledge, which is what makes it interesting for me uh, to write uh, a novel about, because fiction allows you... Um, a degree of creative license whilst setting you the challenge of going out and finding out as much as you can about what things would have been like. So, I'm going to give you one example to illustrate uh, the difficulties but also the opportunities of um, what we know about the details of uh, the common soldier's experience in medieval battle. And that, that example is clothes. Now, I'm doing some research into what do we know about what ordinary foot soldiers and archers wore? Well, in fact, what do we know about what um, combatants at every level of a campaign like the 1346 Crescent Campaign wore? And you go to the section about... I was, I've got a couple of books, and you go to the sections about knights, and you go... And I, and I get into sort of knightly armour, and, man, you can nerd out so technically on the different names for the bits of armour and the weapons and you can go to like you can go to museums both in real life and online and check out suits of armour and that's 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 all cool and you can do the same not only for men but for horses and there's been loads of research into horse bones recently which says that maybe medieval horses were not as big as we thought that you know upper class stuff pretty pretty rich seam of historical information to mine 
not so much for the archers and the uh, the ordinary foot soldiers, because when I was thinking, well, what what kind of armor do these these guys wear? Are they are they wearing mail armor? Are they wearing like leather? Are they wearing padded sort of horsehair padded coats? The answer in most secondary sources, most reference books, most scholarly reference books is like, meh, we're not really sure, not much has really survived, you know, probably like leather cap, maybe if they could get a sort of iron hat, might stick that on, maybe sort of padded jacket, not too sure, and there's there's an undertone of don't really care. Um, Now, if I was writing a history book, I'd be quite frustrated by that. But... Um, writing a novel, I actually find that a great, uh, opportunity because we've got just about enough information about what might have been worn. And we've also got a sense that a medieval army was not provisioned, uh, regimented, it was not professionalized like, you know, a post 18th century European army would have been. So what we have to imagine is basically people grabbing whatever they've got uh, and scavenging whatever they can find. And so in right, when I'm writing Essex Dogs and describing my platoon, putting on, you know, they're, they're marching in the heat, they're not going to be wearing protective gear all the time. But when, they, when they're putting it on, when, when they sense there's going to be a rumble, it's really a mishmash of stuff and some of them... Uh, you know, I've got one character who used to have a, uh, a sort of male vest that had been handed down and been made 40 years ago and in the wars of Edward I. And he's wearing... No, he doesn't have that because he's got too fat to wear it. It just won't fit over his belly anymore. And I, I, I feel like when you do things like that in fiction, which and, and non-fiction doesn't really give you the opportunity to do it, but you can in, in historical fiction, and you create a much uh, more realistic texture by saying, you know, I think these guys would have just muddled along and not being afraid to say, well, some of them did this and some of them did that and some of them we don't really know what might it have been like. I've worked on television projects before where the question from the costume department is, okay, what did, what did this class of person wear? And the answer for the needs of a television program, like a drama series, will be, well, they all wore this type of top and this type of trousers and this type of hat. Well, did they? Is your experience of ordinary life that outside school or McDonald's there's a plane, can you hear it? Outside school at McDonald's, people all wear exactly the same thing? No. So I think we should reflect that in... Uh, or I think I should reflect that. I like to reflect that in my current writing. Thank you for your question, Valerie. I'm going to pause. Now, that's a very long answer to the question. Um, but it's, it's brought us actually to the foot of the mighty Anchorwick U. Uh, and so I'm currently standing under the branches of a many thousands-year-old tree and I, I encourage you to sort of go, maybe I'll put up a picture of it if I can do that with this post if I can't I'll put it maybe I'll post it on Sunday I'll send a little free mail out on Sunday on to show you what it looks like I would say 
diameter-wise, we're talking 12 feet, maybe. And it's a mass of writhing, uh, interconnected individual trunks, which are sort of... There are two main ones, and they split apart. And then from between them grow like gigantic vines or limbs these ancient other stems of you and 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 yet out of even the thickest of those stems grow tiny new little fronds of of deepest yet brightest green it's super dope uh it's a big old tree it's so big that if i were so inclined i could squeeze inside the gap between its various trunks and live like a like a tree sprite a giant tree sprite i'm wearing a a pink bobble hat at the moment a a giant tree sprite and a pink bobble hat i could do that i'm not going to do that that would be insane i'm currently i'm gonna okay you can't I, i can't sound engineer this but under my wellies is a soft carpet of both fresh and partially decomposed yew needles and many of them have turned back into the earth, into the soil, and, and are thereby going to nourish the giant ancient tree itself, which is probably around when Jesus was around. I told my kids it was around when Jesus was around. They were like, what, Jesus came here? I stopped the conversation because I thought it would become too complicated. Let's leave the Ankowick you and return to the questions. Um, what have we got here? Kim Whelan says, "Did you do you enjoy doing the audio version of your books?" Uh, and I replied on the on the thread on Wednesday, saying, "Thereby hangs a tale." A little bit of Shakespeare for you. Kim Whelan did not say, "Whereby hangs a tale," but I let her off for that. She says, "Hmm, would love to hear all about it." To be honest, when I started doing audio books, I did not enjoy the experience one bit. I found it frustrating. Uh, tough on the voice and boring. But over the years, I've come, if not actively to enjoy it, then to, to deeply appreciate the process, um, both to appreciate what professional voice artists do day in, day out, and how strong your voice needs to be to sit and record, you know, and, and read live, and read and record for seven, eight hours a day. You've got to have a mad strong voice for that. Uh, and, and actually great concentration and stamina. But more than that, I've found, as a writer, the process of actually reading out, word by word, every single word of a book that you've written, being unable to change it, because you usually record the audiobook after the text has been fixed and finalised, and it's gone through four edits, uh, is incredibly improving. So as a writer, all writers should be made to read their books aloud. I believe, because goddamn, when you're confronted with your tics, your habits, your basic illiteracies, um, your lack of imagination, all the things that are bad about your writing, and, and no writer is perfect, when you're confronted with those and made to read them aloud, it can be quite bracing. And at first, it's an unpleasant experience, but if you if you lean into it. Man, 
you'll iron out a lot of those mistakes. When I read, I think it was Plantagenet, I realized in that book how many times I used the word great. Great, 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 all the time. I mean, I should have done, I should have, uh, got Microsoft Word to count how many times I used the word great. It's a lot. And, uh, it jacked me off so much. That means annoyed me. I know in American that has a slightly different meaning. Um, in English it means that annoyed me. Uh, that I, uh, I, I don't, I, well, I try very hard not to use the word great where I can possibly help it. I probably still do. But, um, if I write it, I usually delete it straight away. And I think that's good. I think that's been improving. Um, I did, the Thereby Hangs a Tale refers to when I recorded Powers and Thrones, my most recent history book. I recorded it in the hottest week of the year in London, in central, well, North London, but, you know, the urban sprawl of North London, in a tiny studio in which I could, if I spread out my limbs, I could touch every wall of my little studio booth. No natural light, no windows, no air conditioning uh, that I could use while I was reading because the sound would affect the recording. Uh, so just a little iPad and a tiny little lamp uh, and 36 degrees centigrade. That, I think that's like a 100. Maybe it's slightly more. I think it's a 100 or thereabouts in Fahrenheit. Baking into the wall of my little booth. Uh, as well as being tiring, so goddamn hot. So while I was reading Powers and Thrones, I started, I mean, I started going in in shorts and t-shirt. And then when I was reading, I started taking the t-shirt off. And then I started taking the shorts off. So most of the Powers and Thrones audiobook, if you listen to it, I was sitting there in just my underpants. And I was doing this and then my producer was in the next door booth but couldn't see me. And I didn't, I'd never worked with her before. She seemed nice but I didn't want to say. It sounds, it sounds really, you shouldn't say. I couldn't, I didn't want to say, I'm sitting here semi-naked, more than semi, because that feels like harassment. I wanted to give information, but not to, not to be misconstrued as like a pervo. So, I didn't tell her for ages, and then after a while, I, I like, we'd spent several days recording together, and I said, look, I'd, here's the preamble, I, this is not, please don't take this the wrong way, but I just want you to know I'm so hot physically hot with warmth and not sexual energy that I'm just sitting there in my pants. She goes, oh yeah, yeah, everyone does that. So that made me feel a lot better. Anyway, visual image for you, which may put you off my audiobooks forever. Some of them recorded more than semi-naked. Um, what, 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 what else did people want to know? Let's think. Kelly. Kelly just wants a shout-out. We can do that quickly. Kelly says, can I have a shout-out? Then she does a sort of nauseous, bilious emoji. 50th birthday on the 29th of Jan. Might cheer me up. Might's doing a lot of work in that sentence, isn't it? Happy birthday, Kelly, on the 29th of January. Hope you have a lovely time. Thank you for being you. Um, Renee says, what fact is there from medieval history which is taken as gospel but is actually complete shite? Americans, that means shit. Um, yeah. Well, I, I was kind I mean, there's one that's appropriate to sort of where I am now. So, and it's, it's, there's, there's two layers to it. So, I, okay, I'm near Runnymede, where in 1215, the Magna Carta Peace Conference occurred. 
June 1215. Now, I was arguing with one of my children last night about Magna Carta. Now, that's not... I don't want to give you the wrong impression about how our family, our domestic setup works. We don't have a lot of historical arguments. Okay? But there was history homework to be done. And the history uh, homework was to... They're doing medieval history, this child. And the history homework was to do a little card that was a sort of true or false quiz question. And so my child did true or false. Magna Carta, I had to discourage her from writing the Magna Carta. Magna Carta was signed in 1215. Now, I thought that was initially a good question because there's a red herring. It makes you think, ah, true or false, was it 1215? And of course the answer is false, although it was 1215, Magna Carta was never signed. But then, so that, so the most obvious answer to your question, Renee, is uh, people think Magna Carta was signed. But, you know, that's become such a, a sort of a thing where people go, Magna Carta wasn't actually signed. Um, but there's a second error that's crept in, which is, it was sealed. Uh Anyway, my child, who does not have that voice, said, was writing, Magna Carta wasn't signed in 1215, it was sealed. You didn't do that voice. Um, And I said, well, actually, that's not accurate either, because that presupposes a sort of Versailles-like peace conference ending at which the uh, symbolic um, settlement... Uh, the finalization of this agreement, this peace treaty that was Magna Carta, was some sort of ceiling where John or some official got a big stamp and went kaboom and, and sealed a sort of ur Magna Carta, the, the, the master document in lieu of signing. But that's not accurate. That is not accurate. So if anyone says, oh, Magna Carta wasn't signed, it's sealed. That is not accurate. What's more accurate is to say, there was a, a, a sort of final agreement of the peace terms on the Friday, probably, of the week in which they were being negotiated. After which everyone said, do we agree? Well, we're all fairly unhappy, so that probably means yes. And then, copies of the agreement were made of its terms. That doesn't necessarily presuppose one master copy, but numerous exemplar type, you know, numerous editions of the same text were produced to be sent around England. Now, seals were applied to these, and one of the four Magna Carta 1215 editions that survive in the British Library, the one that was burned in the Cotton Library fire, has a wax seal, a partially melted, still attached. The other three in Lincoln uh, and the second British Library copy and the Salisbury copy do not have their wax seals attached. But the sealing was not part of the agreement process. What probably was part of the agreement process was that John took the rebellious barons back into his um, the, uh, into his good lordship, if that makes any sense. They renewed their homage to John. There was a ceremony by which they all said, sorry for rebelling, mate, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll knock it on the head. And there's a homage ceremony, and they were, they were readmitted to his good grace. That, if there's any single moment at which Magna Carta is, can be formally... Um, be recognised as as being agreed, that was it. The homage ceremony. Anyone who wants to read more about this in, in super technical detail, excellently super technical detail, should look at David Carpenter's book, Magna Carta, because his chapter on the agreement is absolutely superb and lays it out. So, Renee, 
absolute shite, Magna Carta was signed, but double absolute shite, Magna Carta was sealed. Absolute, what's the opposite of shite? Absolute food. Uh, <laughs> is that the opposite of shite? I guess it is. Absolute food, um, Magna Carta was granted, and then the barons were taken back into John's good books. Ta-da. Doesn't have the same ring about it, and it's harder to draw a picture of. And by the time I'd been doing some of that explanation last night, my kid had really was just playing Roblox. Um, or watching Norris Nuts or something. Lord above, what else is there? Hmm. Why does the overthrow of Henry VI start the Wars of the Roses and not that of Richard II, says Daisy? Because the overthrow of Richard II uh, was um, followed by the establishment of a relatively secure Lancastrian polity, wobbly under Henry IV, but extremely secure under Henry V. Um, and it's a bit like who won that argument? The Lancastrians did. There was no question about it until Henry VI uh, grew up, really. Um, and people started saying, well, this won't do, and looking for rationales to rebel against him. Uh, and then, and sort of then post-justifying, or, or not post-justifying, but then playing back the origin of their grievances to the deposition of Richard II. And that sense was, of course, reinforced by uh, the two Shakespeare's two tetralogies, um, which, when taken together, see the sort of original sin of the deposition of Richard II, uh, punished by the horrors of the Wars of the Roses, and then eventually settled by the vanquishing of the embodiment of pure evil in the person of Richard III. That has a sort of poetic shape to it. Um, it's also historically somewhat misleading, but that's, uh, that's Shakespeare for you. Wouldn't change it for the world. Uh, Ashley C says, dealing with crazy pre-teen pre girl behaviour. Not sure if that's Ashley C's own or... Oh, no, hang on, it's not. Uh, and, by the way, that buzzing you can hear is the road on the other side of the River Thames which separates where I'm walking now, which is in a sort of a little wood, uh, which in, in, in rainy times uh, has quite a stagnant pond in it. That's all dried up at the moment. It's been quite dry. Uh, anyway, back to Ashley C's question. Um, Ashley C mentioned to a crazy preteen that Henry II locked his wife in a tower for a decade. Um, that got me thinking. Any great stories of medieval kids gone astray and parents who went to the ends to straighten them out? Well, we talked about this a little bit. Did we talk about this last week? No, I wrote about it slightly in, um, in Monday's free post on prince has gone wrong and that's the black prince i mean in the cressy campaign which of course as i've already explained is on my mind at the moment uh the black prince is kind of left to fend for himself a little bit isn't he at uh, at cressy his father seems fed up with him and say so, and the black prince has really got himself to a s sticky spot in the fighting age about 16 and his father says let him get himself out of it let him win his spurs uh, so that, that that's a, that's a pretty good one Otherwise, I think you're, I think your instinct, Ashley, is right. Look at Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. I mean, Henry's troubles with his wife were one thing. His troubles with his sons were far more severe. Uh, and, uh, in a way, Eleanor pays the penalty for her son's waywardness. 
Henry the Young King, maybe we can have some sympathy with, maybe. Richard, Geoffrey and John, hmm, harder to, harder to. So I think, I think you've already alighted on the right, uh, the right place. Nigel Kershaw says, who had the most sex in medieval England, the aristocracy, the knights or the poor? Asking for a friend, asking for a friend who appears to be going back on sort of sex time travel tourism. I'm not sure I can condone that. Uh, I don't know, because we don't know how much sex the poor have. We don't really know how much sex anyone was having. All we can really say for absolute cast iron certain, I think, and by the way, I would definitely recommend you read Catherine Harvey's Fires of Lust, a book entirely dedicated to medieval sex. Um, but all I think we can say with absolute cast iron certainty is the people who were most obsessed with sex were the people who were supposed to be having the least of it, which were, was professed religious, monks, and to a much lesser degree, nuns, uh, who were all forever writing about sex, as though it was the worst thing in the world, as though there'd be any people without it. Um, but yeah, I, the, Catherine Harvey's book is dope. I reviewed it for the Sunday Times last year, if you want to dig through that out and see if you're going to like it or not. Um, hum. Well, I think we're almost out of time. I've really rambled on. I think I rambled on too much. Did you, do you think I rambled on too much? That is the sort of thing I do. Um, I'm going to try and pick one last question. Uh, but if I haven't picked your question, and the chances are I haven't, because there were so many amazing questions, well, I, be assured I read all these questions. I read every single question that's submitted. And as has happened this week, by the way, I hope you liked... Uh, yesterday's post on Robin Hood and the start of a medieval outlaw series. There were so many questions about medieval outlaws last week. I thought, let's not... I did a little bit on this, uh, let's call it a podcast, but I did a whole Robin Hood article yesterday and I hope you enjoyed reading that. I will... I, I take note of your questions. I want this to be a, a sort of a platform and an environment where... It's interactive. You ask, and I, uh, I will deliver. So keep asking these questions, and I'll shout, I'll shout you out and answer them as much as I could. Um, Chester says a shout-out to Chester would be good. Great, he says, even. Shout-out, Chester. Tom Schwartz, the big man, says, I'd like to hear a shout-out to the ST at St. Louis United, STL United, St. Louis United. Soccer Sunday radio show, which I'm guessing is the only show about football that also discusses you and your books. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I think they all should, but I'm biased. <sighs> let's think. Let's let's finish with Nick Cooper. Um, you're a true conqueror, Dan. Uh, there is more to it than that. <laughs> That's not. That would be a good ending, wouldn't it? Let's finish with Nick Cooper. You're a true conqueror, Dan. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, that's all. Uh, see you next time. You're a true conqueror, Dan. The world is your destiny. That's amazing. Anyone who starts a question with stuff like that has a higher chance of being shouted out. But you need an army. Who do you pick? Genghis Khan's Horde? Richard the Lionheart's Crusaders? The Great Heathen Army? Or something completely different? Are you joking? Are you actually joking? I mean, okay, well, let's take Mongols versus Crusaders. Mongols didn't just, like, do the Crusaders, although they sort of didn't really. They did the goddamn Mamluks. 
Now, the Mamluks did the Crusaders and the, and the Mongols did the Mamluks. You do the math. I'm taking, I'm taking, I, I am taking, although it's, chances are they're not following me. I'm attempting to take the Mongols every single time. Unless you're offering me the Romans. I don't think you are. But if you're offering the Romans, I'll take the Romans. And if you're offering me the modern United States Army, I might, you know, I'm tempted. Uh, but putting those two aside, man, I'm taking the Mongols every time. Oh, no, and then there's one from Shane as well I wanted to answer. What changes occurred to society after the Black Death in 1348-9 plus are instructive, do you think, to how society will change if we come out of the much milder COVID pandemic? Oh, no, I want to answer that. I want to answer that so much, but that feels like 15 to 20 minutes of, uh, of me blathering on. I'll sum it up and maybe we'll do this at greater length at some point uh, when there's, when there's a, a, a COVID-appropriate moment. Might even be next week. Um, I think almost, although, the, you know, look, the Black Death wiped out. It had a massive demographic impact in a way that COVID, thank God, because the vaccines uh, did not. I say thank God because of vaccines, because COVID obviously disproportionately affected older people. And had it had you know had the first, obviously I'm doing it. I'm actually answering the question. Had the first iteration of COVID been Omicron, uh, I think you'd have seen not again not Black Death level numbers. But imagine if it was Omicron and you, Omicron, you had SARS level numbers, 15% mortality, weighted towards older people. Uh, out of control global pandemic. Um, that might have done some, you know, stepping outside the the mortal tragedy, some interesting things demographically with wealth redistribution, particularly in the affluent West. But it didn't. Um, I think that accelerations of technological improvements are one connection between the Black Death and COVID pandemic. And I think more generally, a sort of catalyzing effect on political outlooks and and especially attitudes towards structural inequality in society that's my instinct but man i think that's a, it's such a big subject that i'm going to i'm going to stop it there otherwise i'll never shut up um thanks guys thank you for being subscribers if you're an old school subscriber and you're renewing your subscription this month, next month. Um, and thank you, thank you. Uh, I've I loved doing this last year, this Substack, and I am absolutely loving loving it like even more by an order of magnitude more this year. It's a lot of fun, uh, and I get I'm really getting a uh, a buzz out of us all having this kind of sense of community asking questions, jumping on threads, um, feeding ideas of what, what you want to hear. Keep doing that. If you're a new subscriber, welcome. I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, there'll be another one coming along probably next week. Um, I haven't really updated you on the progress of my walk. Nothing spectacular has happened. The only thing I can say that you can't really imagine is that I've been periodically kicking my, my boots quite hard and making, making the mud compacted in their rubber soles fly fly in the air like a mud bird that's what i've been doing you only knew that now
now as we reach the end. Goodbye. <laughs>